Any workout, any mood, any time. That's what the Peloton Tread is all about. From interval runs that motivate you to go the extra mile, power walks that work up a sweat, rolling hill hikes for you to enjoy, and full body boot camps to hit your goals. Plus thousands of workouts that go beyond the tread. Strength programs, core classes, yoga, Pilates, and even boxing. Everything you need on and off the Peloton Tread. Experience it all for yourself with a 30-day home trial. Learn more at OnePeloton.com. Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, there is a nice piece of stock music playing behind me that a talented composer worked really hard on. So let's enjoy it. Almost overshadows the saving big when you switch to progressive parts. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Alexa, what's the weather today? Currently, in Blaine at 72 degrees Fahrenheit with mostly sunny skies. Today, you can expect lots of clouds with a high of 73 degrees and a low of 57 degrees. Whether you like it or not, big technology is probably here to stay. The question is... How do we grow with it, or will it take over us completely? Things like the Alexa app have become extremely common in our households. We've invited technology into our home in almost every way, and using Alexa has become a part of that. Today on Dr. D's Social Network, we welcome in Raj Subramayar. Raj is an awesome guy, and we had a spirited conversation about technology and where it's headed. I really loved the discussion, and Raj has been in technology for a very long time, the inner workings, and has a great understanding and grasp of it. I think this is very educational and something that my audience is really going to love, a lot of takeaways and take-homes for you. So, please enjoy the conversation and enjoy Raj Supermeyer. Okay, back on the social network here. Uh, this time with Raj Supermeyer, right? Yep, Supermeyer. Supermeyer, man. Raj, I've been looking forward to speaking with you as I, we had a really good conversation off air. And I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation here. Same here. Uh, yeah, I remember our first conversations. Uh, it was supposed to be a 15-minute call, but we ended up talking for, what, 35, 40 minutes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it happens with me sometimes with people. I'm like, let's talk more. Yeah. I know. So uh, let's see whether they can bring that magic again over here. So, Well, yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I'm really interested in your story and kind of your beginnings, and I think it's good for us to just start the beginning of your life and just let's go from there and see where it goes, you know? Yeah, sure. So I grew up, uh, of course, from my Texas accent, uh, <laughs> people can realize that uh, I'm not born in the U.S. So I'm originally from the southern part of India, from a place called Chennai. And uh, just to give you an idea, Chennai is like one of the big cities where IT is big. And uh, you have Chennai, Kolkata, New Delhi, Mumbai, uh, and Bangalore. That's pretty much the five big cities mm-hmm. in uh, India. But anyways, I grew up in Chennai. 
uh, in a conservative middle-class family, and I'm the younger of the two kids. And since a young age, I kind of developed this inferiority complex that I wasn't good enough uh, and I didn't matter. The reason was, uh, it was partly because of my childhood upbringing, because my dad, since he grew up, he studied his entire life in scholarship because he was super smart. Then you had my brother, elder brother, who was five years older than me, and uh, he was a genius. He, he currently has three masters and then a PhD in robotics. And then there I was, Raj, the average Joe, who didn't do that well in academics, right? So that was kind of the basis of how my whole transformation started. Because this is a thing. For me, I had a lot of interests. I was really good in outdoor sports, uh, good in making friends, uh, good in asking questions about things I didn't know. And also, uh, where I come from, you don't ask questions because it's like a, a social stigma kind of deal. If you ask questions, you get reprimanded for it because uh, you have to follow the status quo as it is. And uh, they don't want you to diverge from the path they set for you, which they think is good for you. So that is kind of... Uh, how it all started. So I grew up in the southern part of India there under this environment. And then I was constantly comparing myself with other people, uh, especially in the academic side of you, because with Asian folks, it's a thing. Academics is really, really huge. And all these things led me to um, get, develop anxiety, fear of rejection, fear of public speaking. In fact, just talking to a girl would feel like as if, as if I'm going to get a nervous breakdown, right? right. <laughs> so yeah. I was going through all these se- uh, low self-esteem, severe body image issues because people used to ridicule me for my weight. Um, and then the trigger event happened the second year of undergrad where I came through some, through some realization about what I'm doing, what I'm what what kind of life I'm currently living. And then some things happened during that trigger event. And, and fast forwarding, what, 20 years from that episode, I'm currently an international keynote speaker, writer, and a tech career coach. I've helped to transform numerous people's lives and careers through my speaking, writing, and uh, coaching. So that's pretty much in a nutshell of uh, where I was, what I went through, and what I'm doing right now. Wow, that's pretty crazy. Like, uh, you know, it's interesting about how, like, you couldn't really ask questions. And I find that curious. I want to dive just a little deeper on that before we move forward. But what was the thought process behind? I know it's like you said, kind of like this is kind of the path and how things were. But was there a sense of like, hey, don't question how things have always been done and just stay in this this pathway? Yeah, so... it. It was a couple of things. So first thing is um, your parents know what's best for you. That's that's how we grew up. That's the kind of uh, atmosphere we grew up in. Like our parents know what's best for you. They have gone through some experiences and which they thought worked for them. So automatically it uh, comes down to me and my brother where they think their path is the right path. And so when they see any changes from the plan they have set up for us, for our 
uh, upbringing and our growth, then they get really pissed, right? And that's why first thing is when you ask questions about something saying, hey, that this doesn't even seem to make sense, then they get irritated because one thing is they think that they're not respecting them. We are not respecting them. Second thing is uh, it makes it makes it sound as if they don't know what they're doing, right? But they've gone through so many, so much of life experiences and they feel that they're we are trying to validate them. So those were a couple of things firsthand what happens mm-hmm. when you ask questions. And then you get so in tune into that whole atmosphere where you ask questions, get reprimanded for it, ask questions, get reprimanded for it. So what happens is you start developing this fear of asking questions. And so we get into the habit of following whatever is given to us. Okay, this is the right path for you. This is the direction you have to go. This is the clothes you have to wear today. No, this is the thing you have to do. And then oh. you stop being independent. You stop being creative. And that's the problem with, which a lot of people are facing, not only in where I come from, but I've seen this happening in a lot of people's lives, even in America, in conservative families as well. Hmm. Now, the adjustment to, so when you were, at what point did you come to America and then started to maybe veer from some of these practices that you were used to growing up? Yeah, so before we get to that point, I just want to give some context. So all these transformation and things uh, didn't magically happen. So remember I was telling you about the trigger event yes. uh, which happened, which kind of gave me the realization of what is happening and what I need to do. So a little bit about that before I talk about yeah. how I changed my uh, the my life once I came to the U.S., right? So the the transformation kind of started well before I came to the U.S. So that's why I think the story is really important. So going back to the trigger event, so this happened during my second year of my undergrad. And I still remember this vividly because I was in my room and my chest was pounding. I thought I was getting a heart attack, but... Apparently, it was just all these emotions and anxiety uh, and depression inside me, which had bottled up for for the first 20 years of my life. And it literally blew up at that time. So for two hours, I was just pretty much sobbing and uh, trying to figure out why am I crying? Why am I feeling this way? Why do I feel... Uh, like shit right now, although uh, I've been following everyone's rules and regulations. So after those two hours of a lot of introspection, crying, and this whole trigger event, that's when I realized that, you know what? I'm good enough. I matter. I can carve my own identity. I can find my own passion, and I don't have to follow what people say are good for me. So the main transformation moment was then that two hours during my second year of undergrad, right? And that's what kind of triggered the whole transformation. And this was way back in 2002, no, 2003 timeframe. Mm-hmm. And then since then, uh, I started trying. So there were two things mainly I want to change about myself. First thing was I was a really shy, introverted kid. And nothing wrong being an introvert. 
But for me, I wanted to be able to talk to people confidently, right? So I started getting out of my comfort zone, started taking part-time jobs, uh, started inserting myself into uncomfortable conversations so that I learned, started making new friends as well. Mm-hmm. And then uh, coming back to your uh, question of uh, how did the transformation and what were the things change? What were the things you changed when you came to the U.S.? So since 2002 till about 2008, I tried so many different things. Again, small, small steps, right? Getting out of my comfort zone and then trying to learn everything, find mentors and coaches who could help me out. And then I decided to come to the U.S. in 2008. And I, <laughs> it's super funny. I know it, it now it sounds funny, but at that time... Uh, it was super scary because uh, I, I came to the U.S. on August 31st, 2008. Mm-hmm. And then the recession started on September 7th, 2008. That's when Lehman Brothers fell. And for those of you listening, you probably may be too young or not have heard about Lehman Brothers, but they were one of the biggest financial firms in the world. And they fell and that pretty much was a landmark for the starting of the recession of 2008. So... That's the time when I came to the U.S., right? And then I did a lot of things to get out of the situation and then uh, transform my life. So I could share more stories about that if you want to take that angle. But to answer your question, yes, the whole transformation started on, in 2008 when uh, the recession started, started and when I came to the U.S., So what do you feel like you learned most about yourself as you were making this transition? So one thing is I found found out that I'm pretty resilient and I don't take no for an answer. I try to put in 100% of my effort and then try not to attach myself to to the outcome. And that kind of mentality has helped me not only during the 2008 timeframe, but even now when I'm running my own business, right? So just to give you some context, one simple example of where these qualities actually helped me come out of a rut was during 2008 and 2009 timeframe, because the recession, the jobs were really limited, just similar to where we are right now. Uh, in the past couple of months, uh, there were a lot of layoffs and getting jobs were really hard. And it was very similar situation in 2008 as well. And I came to the U.S. as an immigrant. So I needed someone to sponsor a work permit, a work visa, which they call the H-1B, for me to work for them, right? And no one was ready to sponsor it because they didn't have money to start with the companies. And then they don't want... They didn't want to invest in me. So I applied for 1,293 jobs, 1,293 jobs from start of 2009 to 2010. And guess how many callbacks I got from those 1,293 jobs? How many? I got four callbacks. Four. Four. Oh, my gosh. The number four, four callbacks. And Whoa. guess how much I converted? I literally converted one. That's so amazing. if you do the math, it was 0.3% conversion rate. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and the wow. one job, 
was not actually not a full-time job. It was actually an internship where the company said, you know what, we're not going to sponsor your work permit, but we're going to give you a temporary work permit so that you can do an internship. And then we have to decide whether we could, you know, hire you full-time. Mm-hmm. So for the next six months, I worked my ass off. And then I was able to prove to people that, okay, I can work and I can do the things uh, people want me to do. And that's when they decided to sponsor me. And th- that one decision I made to put to do everything it takes and stick around led me to where I am today, where I'm running my own six-figure business and then helping so many people. Those things would not have happened if I didn't take that initiative of doing whatever it takes in um, 2008, 2009 timeframe. So. I mean, to apply for over a thousand jobs and yeah. to have four, four places get back to you, that's staggering. I mean, what were you thinking when you're applying for all those jobs? I mean, I can't imagine there's a lot of people that are like, I'm going to apply for this many jobs, <laughs> you know? I know. <laughs> so, when I started, I never knew I was going to apply for these many jobs. Yeah. I was like a machine every day, <laughs> like for five hours. I kept applying, 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 applying. But truth to be told, for the first 500 jobs, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was just randomly applying without any strategy, right? I was just stupid because I didn't put in the thought process or I didn't strategize the job application process. But for the next 500 odd jobs, that's when I started seeing that, okay, these kind of resumes work. Oh, these kind of keywords work. Oh, this is a strategy which I need to follow, right? So it was a great learning experience. So in terms of what I was going through and and what I was thinking, I was just, uh, the only thing I was thinking about was trying to get a job. Right. And that was my motivation. But in the process of doing that, I learned so many different strategies that can set you set yourself miles apart from the competition and make people notice you instead of you trying to uh, figure out jobs. Right. And that kind of literally that kind that experience has uh, helped me do what I'm doing today. Pretty much I'm a tech career coach who help people in the tech industry to grow in their careers, find their dream job and become successful leaders. And that's what I do. And also I took the exact same concepts and then I'm putting that, putting that out in my new book as well, which is going to release in a couple of months. But the initial thought process, which I learned the different things I learned at that point is pretty much what I'm currently doing as well. Okay. That's awesome, man. You know, I want to I wanna go behind the curtain a little bit about the tech industry because I think you're probably one of the first people I've had, even though I've had a ton of people on the show that is working in that space uh, intimately. So give us a little bit behind the scenes of what it's like right now in the tech industry and what we can expect from that industry coming up. Yeah, so first thing first, yeah. Tech industry always has jobs, no matter what the circumstances are. I know the last three, four months, a lot of people have lost jobs, but the tech industry always has jobs because every day there's a new startup coming up and they're trying to solve some problem or the other, which have been 
persisting for the past decade or so, right? So in terms of the direction where the tech industry is going, I think that uh, I believe there is a lot of opportunities for people to transition into the tech world or if they're already in the tech world, there's, there's a lot of opportunities to do different things they want to do uh, within the industry is, itself because there's so many different types of job uh, types, right? Like if you're a business person, you could be a business analyst. And if you're a tech person, you could be a coder. If you like breaking applications and finding problems, you can be a software tester. And so there's always something for someone in the tech industry. And uh, so, yeah, in terms of where it's heading, I think it's uh, there was a setback because of COVID. But again, just like how we have had problems in the past, like the recession, then yet that anthrax scared, yet 9-11, there was always, you know, there's this bump where things seem like it's going to be hard and tech industry is going to go down, but it always bounces back up. So I think it's heading in a good direction and there are a lot of opportunities right now. Is there anything surprising in the tech industry that, let's say for people who are trying to get into it, that maybe they have this idea about it ahead of time, but maybe the realization of it is a little different? Oh yeah, definitely. One of the biggest surprises uh, and realizations people will get when they get into the tech industry is no one cares about your resume or your qualification or your degree. It's all about what you bring to the table. So the peop- So I've been in the industry for over 15 years now. I've interviewed hundreds of people. I've led people of 50 teams or more. And I can uh, definitely say that whatever you do in terms of your experience, you can have a BA in arts or you could come from, you can have a major in political science, minor in international studies like my wife, who's now an IT consultant. So you, you can have any degree you want, but I think it it's about how you show up and how you uh, build your brand. That's what is important. And when I say, when I say build your brand, it's all about effective communication, being a team player, having the right attitude to learn. Even you, you you can join a company without knowing what their tech stack is or the tools they use. But if you show them that you're willing to learn things, you can immediately, uh, you know, they'll favor you by giving you a job and helping you out as well. So the biggest surprise for me, based on my experience, would be that uh, it's just not your qualification, but it's mm-hmm. more about it, more about your soft skills, uh, which is which plays a big part in you landing the, your dream job and being successful in it. That's surprising. I think people, I think maybe the observation may be that there uh, is a lot of competition for, based off of your, you know, education, background and tech, things that nature versus the soft skills, which is, well, I like that. That's really cool, I think. Yeah, so this what happened, right? So in the past, so what you're saying was kind of, the norm about five, six years ago, where mm-hmm. people had these fancy degrees and fancy education from Harvard and Stanford. And then they thought, okay, these are the people we want. But then as technology advanced, as uh, the workforce become, became more diverse and there's a lot of different pro- new processes which are coming into picture to build software, they found that people who are super smart technically 
have problems communicating with people. <laughs> and also, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yes, yes very true. <laughs> and and also, they try to find the most complex solutions to simple problems, right? So, for example, I'm just just a random example again. I'm not taking digs at different universities, but I'm just yeah. want to give you your audience some context. Say you hire hire a person from Harvard and say, "Hey, can you please toast a bread for me?" Right? What the guy from Harvard is going to do is take the bread, analyze the composition of how much yeast to uh, dough ratio, and then check out the room temperature with a the thermostat or with some device, and then start analyzing what kind of uh, a uh, bread toaster would be ideal for the given bread. And then he puts in the bread and he's not yet done. Then he wants to analyze how much uh, heat is generating. So he takes a, a heat measuring device and see whether it's the optimum heat. And then he starts measuring the time, like how much time it takes for the bread to pop, right? And then once it pops, he's still not yet done. Because it's the bread, he gets a fancy, fancy ass plate, right? Which is beautifully decorated and then puts the bread in one portion of the plate. And then he starts analyzing how to actually present the bread to the person. And then after five days, then you get the toasted bread. Okay. That is one <laughs> story. Okay. Just keep that in mind. for yes. Now, the yes. second story is they ask me, how do you toast a bread? I come and take a bread, put it in the toaster. It pops up. Here you go in two minutes, right? The only question I'll ask there was, hey, do you want your bread to be fully toasted crisp or do you want to be sem- want it to be semi-soft, okay? They would say, okay, I want it to be semi-soft, like not too crisp, but uh, not too soft. Okay, then I just, there, I have a basic toaster. I have five levels. I just put it in three and then I get a semi-soft bread and then I give it to them. That's it, done. Literally three minutes. So this is what, I, I gave a very random example, which I just made up as we were talking. Mm-hmm. This is what people started observing five years, six years ago, where necessarily having a degree doesn't mean you're a good team player and can deliver things at, uh, uh, at the required time. That is because people overthink the solution to problems. And now it's all about finding simple solutions to complex problems. And that's why... The mindset of people have changed from degree and resume to what do you actually bring to your bring to the table and how do you think? In fact, the interviews, I know Google and Amazon have interviews where they ask random questions like how many traffic light, lights are there in the US and then they try to see your reasoning skills. There's mm-hmm. nothing technical about it, but the reason they ask that is they want to see whether you're trying to f- think simple, Right and find problems to complex solutions like what they were asking. So that's where, that's the reason why, just to give you some context, that's the reason why people are heading more towards experience, aptitude, and the soft skills. Wow, I mean, that's well said. Now, do you think that that is being, how is that being put out there to the aspiring person who wants to be in tech? Is Is there a movement of saying, hey, we want people who are, want to find simple solutions to complex problems, not people who see a problem and try to go through 35 iterations of mm-hmm. ways to do that. You know? Yeah, I I do see, um, there have been 
So let me take a step back. So in terms of recruiters, they have been now trained to look at soft skills quite a bit and the experience. That's why even before um, having a face-to-face interview or in this day and age, I would say Zoom interviews, but even before getting to that level, even for the initial screening, the recruiters recruiters are trained to focus on the soft skill and then see whether they'll be a team player, right? And they ask some questions like, hey, tell me about a situation where you had to solve a complex problem, right? It could be just like the bread story and they want to see what kind of answer the person does. So in terms of uh, how the industry is letting people know that soft skills are important is it's starting in various levels from recruitment to job descriptions. The job descriptions have drastically changed as well because the job description, apart from the technical requirements, they also say you need to be a team player. You should have uh, led teams of more than 50 people in the past four years. So you can see that it the, the focus on things outside your academics are have been uh, trickling down into different departments uh, like recruitment, job description, uh, articles, um, then uh, the angle and the focus of rec- uh, the, co- the companies want to go. So in all these things, uh, there's been this focus on soft skills and that's how people come to know that, oh, okay, this is important as well, and then they prepare for it. In fact, when I coach people, majority of the coaching is about mindset change, belief system, and soft skills. Uh, and the technical aspect is really low, which is really surprising. So That is surprising. And I wonder, and maybe you know this or not, is how is that being translated in the higher education realm? Is the curriculum being changed a little bit because of this expectation? Or do you see that it's just the same as it has been in that setting? Great question. That's a great question. Um, I have a lot of friends who are in higher ed and uh, they're like principals or uh, people who design curriculum. And it it definitely has had an impact in the higher ed industry in terms of where the, co- in terms of the way the courses are framed because like till at least about three, four years ago. Yeah. It was the academics was really stringent in, in the sense they would follow one book and then they'll have these questions or things you have to memorize. And then uh, you get scored based on how well you memorize or remember things instead of whether you're creative. Right. And now if you see uh that there's a lot of movement and programs in higher ed to change that uh change the way education is uh done for example there's this um uh, i have friends there as well there's this university called mind valley university and it's an online uh university where they have different higher ed programs and they have like a two or three month uh program where you learn different things from entrepreneurs and uh, other people who have gone through entrepreneurship, leadership, who do motivation because they can hear real facts about how the theory matches into practice, 
right? So Mindvalley is one which is changing the way higher is happening. And then I've heard from a lot of uh, people working in higher ed where they're trying to see how to bring in visualization creativity in their higher ed courses as well, where they're trying to have more group activities. They're trying to have more guest speakers in schools so that people learn mm-hmm. from them. They're trying to have more projects instead of just single uh, individual focus work. They have more projects and where people are given just a high level direction of what needs to be done. And then they are encouraged to use their creativity to come up with solutions. So those are some things which I've been seeing in the past three, four years. So definitely, I think it has impacted the higher ed uh, uh, system as well. Now, do you think also with this, are is the industry pushing for people to create startups or is it just that tech lends itself to being a more startup-based industry? I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the industry is pushing towards more startups, but it's pushing towards more entrepreneurs. And that's where the difference is. So again, entrepreneur can be, it has different uh, interpretations, but it's just someone who applies his or her creativity skills to try to find solutions to some common problems or make an impact in the community, right? That's how I see it as. And I think the industry is focusing more on bringing out the entrepreneur skills of uh, people. Because this is a thing. Everyone has some creativity, some talent, yeah. some entrepreneur skills in them. It's just that they have to be provided a channel through which they could harness these skills. So right now there's a lot of tech incubators where they encourage people to apply, uh, fill out an application and apply for these incubator programs where they get the idea from this person and then help the person build on the idea. And that could materialize into a startup or into a product or into a service, right? So I think the focus is on building a, bringing out the entrepreneurial skills of people. And and to support that, there are a lot of incubator programs right now to help in doing that as well. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know about the tech incubators aspect to that, but it, it makes me wonder on a larger picture, maybe you can speak on this, your thoughts about uh, currently, I know there's um, like the big tech with the four big tech companies and their CEOs are speaking to Congress and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be a lot of uh, information or a lot of, I would say, criticism related to big tech at this point. What is your thoughts and feelings about that? That's another great question. I do feel being a techie guy working in the tech industry, I do feel there are like four or five big names who have monopolized the tech industry. So what that means is they have so much customer data so they can do whatever they want in terms of uh, the services they offer. And that's what you're seeing in media right now where these big companies, yes, at the in the age of COVID, Having Amazon is like a gift, right? Because literally you can order anything and within like a day you get it, right? But a repercussion of that is 
there are a lot of underpaid employees in Amazon stores and Amazon manufacturing plants trying to work around the clock and paid really low to provide the service for people to get products and right on time, right? So a byproduct, so what I'm trying to say is, yeah, we have these four or five big companies. They're providing great service, but a, there's a lot of uh, uh, problems as well, which, which is uh, consumer data, privacy, security, it's been compromised, and then a lot of people are underpaid, and then uh, men are getting paid more than women. That's a big issue in these tech companies. Mm-hmm. So although they solve a lot of different issues and have made our life a lot easier, a lot of people don't know in the background what these five companies are doing, which are hurting yes. people, right? So I, in fact, I'm working with a couple of people on AI and diversity because uh, right now all companies are going towards artificial intelligence. But the problem is there's a lot of racism and uh, there's no cultural context. And me being a person of color and a tech guy, I've been uh, working on a couple of initiatives as well. So in summary, what uh, in summary, what I could say is, yes, these companies are good, but there should be some way to regulate them. And that's my biggest problem right now. I I actually feel very similar to this. I mean, I wasn't asking, I never asked if people like agree with me. I'm just interested like what their thoughts are, honestly. And my thoughts have always been, there's a lot going on with your personal data and what this is being used for. And I would say most of the public has no clue of how things are happening behind the wall. And behind exactly. the curtain, right? And your data being used and sold and, and all that stuff and privacy concerns with that. And I just wonder, as things get bigger and bigger, how can we gain more knowledge about what we're doing? Because it almost feels like we're using this technology that we have no idea how it actually works behind the scenes. Exactly. And that's what the companies want you to do. That is... They don't, they don't want you to know about the technology. Just use it and then be happy with the service. But in turn, uh, you brought up a great, great, great topic. In, and I talk about a lot and write about it a lot as well, which is customer data. So data, let's just take AI, for example, right? So a lot of people have had this issue where right now you have these virtual assistants like Alexa, Google Home, and what they do is they're constantly listening to you, even if you don't initiate conversation with it, right? These -hmm. companies were actually denying that they're doing it, but then two years ago, news broke out that Apple, Google, and Amazon have actual contractors who are listening to all your audio clips to make the AI much smarter. But as a result of that, they can... Uh, hear a lot of private things happening in your bedroom, in your banking, like anything related to finances. All these private conversations are being, like people are listening to you. That is one big issue. And after the news broke out, Google and Apple fired all these contractors to get more security. But Amazon, they did something really interesting. They took the creepiness level to the next stage where they said, you know what? We're not going to fire contractors, but we're going to release a new 
feature for Amazon Alexa called Alexa Guard. And the feature is it's going to constantly listen to you. <laughs> and if there's a break-in, we're going to notify you, right? So <laughs> that is one aspect where all these uh, our, uh, data, all our data is used by these companies to make their systems much smarter, but our privacy is being compromised. Another aspect, which is a huge one, which is which we are a victim of currently, is targeted advertisements. Yes. So I'm pretty sure you would have had this experience as well. So, so right, right now, me and you are talking, uh, and hopefully, I so I put my phone and do not disturb, and I put my laptop and do not disturb. So hopefully, they're not picking up our audio. But what's happening right now is these uh, Siri and Google uh, voice assistants on our phone, they constantly listen to our conversation and start giving targeted advertisements on Facebook. So for example, a year ago, and this has happened day and night, like every day it keeps happening. But a year year ago, um, me and my best friend were walking in downtown Chicago. I live in Chicago, by the way. And... We saw this advertisement for this fancy brand of water by a bus stop. And then I turned to my uh, friend and said, man, when did water get this fancy? Because when I grew up, there were only like two kinds of water, right? <laughs> if you don't get right. the brand, then you get the other one. And right now, there are like 50 different types of water and it drives me crazy. That's the only thing which they said, right? And then a couple of hours after this conversation, we get, in, we get to my apartment and then we see that on his and my Facebook feed, we are getting ads, Facebook ads for this fancy brand of water. Crazy. And that's the world we live in. These devices are constantly living, uh, listening to you and giving you targeted advertisements. Even Target, for God's sake. For example, I just had a kid. Uh, he's now nine months old. And even before we had a kid, we were getting advertisements from Target via post saying, hey, uh, this is the best strollers for your kid. These are the best brand of diapers for your kid. The reason they know is they look at the shopping patterns in your Target store, right? So just uh, before we had Neil, my kid, we started shopping for diapers. Then we were uh, researching things for our kid. So they knew that, oh, okay, this person is going to have a kid. So they use AI to learn from the buying patterns of people. And then that's how you get targeted advertisements via post and via your app about different things. And what happens is then people get interested and then they buy more, they buy more. Then then you give more targeted advertisements, you buy more. It's a vicious cycle and people don't realize that we are slaves to these companies and <laughs> we are hooked in already, right? So, so we're feeding the AI itself. You're feeding I mean. the AI, exactly. And for, to your question, then... How do we come to a realization or, and build awareness about these things? So first things first is you need to know what you're getting into. So for example, I've never posted any of my kids' pictures on Facebook just because I don't want his security and data to be compromised even when he doesn't know the way of the world, right? So right. you have the control of how you want to approach these technologies Unfortunately, I have to use Facebook because I run my own business and need to let people know about it. But I try to make sure that my privacy settings on Facebook, 
they are the way we want it. And then in most of these uh, stores and apps, you have an option where you can choose to for them, for these companies to share your data or collect your data, or you could opt out of it. So that's the first thing you need to do. Any technology you do, opt out of uh, data sharing because uh, after this became a huge issue two, three years ago, now every company has to adhere to and give you that option, right? First thing. Second thing is keep reading about things from uh, like in magazines and articles about data security and privacy. Literally, Google, data security, racism, technology. uh, In technology, just Google that. You're going to get a lot of articles. Read about it and educate yourself. So that's the two ways which will be a good start. Uh, For me, of course, I'm a tech guy. So I already took courses on AI from Coursera and other uh, places. But for normal consumers, uh, I would just advice or encourage them to uh, opt out of, take control of the security settings and all these apps. Second thing is just keep reading about stuff. So, Are you a proponent of things like DuckDuckGo and Brave and these engines that block ads and only provide, you know, in terms of protect your security a bit better? Huge proponent. Great point, Darian. So again, for those of you uh, do not know the context of DuckDuckGo and Brave. <laughs> uh, they are the alternatives for Chrome and Micro uh, and Firefox who are collecting your data, and uh, Google Search Engine who are also collecting your data. For example, DuckDuckGo is an alternative for Google Search Engine where mm-hmm. they promise and they, it's clearly stated that they don't collect your data, right? So, my, yes, I'm a big proponent of DuckDuckGo. I use that uh, as well. And unfortunately, Google has been there for over 20 years or 15 years or whatever mm-hmm. time. So they've already amassed billions of data, billions and billions of data. So the odds are you're going to get better search results on Google compared to DuckDuckGo. Right. But that being said, DuckDuckGo is still catching up because people like you and me, we value our privacy and data. So a, a lot of people are using DuckDuckGo and they are trying to make it better. So big proponent of brave as well they're alternative for a browser Mm -hmm. uh where they don't collect your data but this is what i'm going to tell people though when you use DuckDuckGo or brave yes initially you're probably not going to get maybe the best experience as firefox or chrome the reason is they have just started and google and mozilla have been there for a while right so we just had to be patient and give it a little bit more time. But if you don't want to use DuckDuckGo or Brave, what I would say is use your browser in, in incognito mode, mm-hmm. in private browsing mode. Although that doesn't eradicate entirely the chances of them getting your data, it's better uh, if you do banking transactions and other things which are personal to you in incognito mode because... Uh, uh, it blocks some of the data which the company can collect. So that would be my advice. You know, I've moved all of my devices, everything to DuckDuckGo and Brave. And you're right, it's not as good, but I can sense it catching up. But I, I've been spreading this around to a lot of my friends. I'm like, listen, man, it's you got to change over. You have to change over because your data is just being collected like crazy. 
and you need to start controlling your information. And so I, like you said, reading, I started reading up on the uh, California that has the law in the books now, right. uh, the California Consumer Protection Act and how that's starting to spread. And I think it's really good. I think we need to take back our data. We need, and if they're buying it and they're selling it, I mean, where, where's my share of that? I mean, you know. Exactly. exactly. And my problem with these people is they're collecting data without my consent. Right. And by default, they think, okay, we want us to share our data. No, we don't. And uh, there are like millions of options you have to uncheck so that they don't collect your data, right? Yeah. And I think it's a it's a really sorry state we live in right now where we have to go through all that hoops so that they don't collect our data. Uh, and I agree with you that we have to start taking control of our data. That's why I sold my Google Alexa, I mean, Amazon Alexa, and uh, I sold it uh, and I didn't want people listening to what I say. And also I have a baby monitor and I chose a baby monitor which doesn't connect to Wi-Fi because there've been a lot of cases where people could hack into your feed and then they could plan different strategies to cause harm to you when the parents are not there, right? Through the web. So anyway, the point is, uh, yeah, we should connect data and then not let these companies monopolize what they're doing because it just um, feels really sad, especially, for example, in the last three weeks, if people have been following Facebook, uh, a lot of companies have pulled out of Facebook ads like Coca-Cola and big companies. That's because Facebook wasn't marking false news and, uh, and they were still promoting them. Unlike Twitter and other social media channels. And so in support of that and a couple of other things which have happened, uh, a lot of sponsors pulled out of Facebook. But then Mark Zuckerberg says, I don't care. I'm not going to change because people need Facebook and this is how it's going to be. So unfortunately, that's the situation. Wow. Wow. We are slaves. We are slaves to Facebook, whether you accept it or not. Yeah, I talk about all these things, but I still have a Facebook account. But again, truth to be told, I opened a Facebook account three months ago. I initially had a Facebook account till 2015, and then I closed it down because of this data privacy thing. It wasn't big that time. People didn't think about it at that time, but I was thinking about it at that time. But now I do have a Facebook account. But again, as Darren, you were saying, uh, we have to try as much as possible to make sure these companies do not take our data, right? That's the best you could do. Yeah, I'm. It's actually one of my um, big hot button topics these days, and I know there's a lot going on that I'm I'm very interested in. But I think it's kind of this under, it's under the radar sludge that's happening. And it's much like AI and different things like that. That there's so much progress on these fronts that to the average consumer, they they don't know what's happening. They don't understand how quickly this stuff is changing, and that humans are feeding AI. Every single second of the day, you're the intelligence that is feeding this intelligence. And, but people do it without literally any idea of thinking, what am I putting into this system, this, this machine, the machine learning, the deep learning, all this stuff? How am I improving AI with my 
stuff. And what's the what's the data that's being taken from me? I, I'm in no ways perfect on any of this. I'm just learning. I've made some changes, like I said, with DuckDuckDo and Brave, and I continue to try to get uh, better. I'm guilty of the Amazon Alexa thing. I have two of them in my mind. I'm like, how do I use this better? Like, how do I do this where it's not like, because I like it, but how do I do it where I, do I just turn off the setting where it listens to you, you know, it turns red? I, I am not perfect on this, but I do think that I'm trying to get better. And I'm well, hopeful I, that we're trying to get better, not allow this to just happen, you know, carte blanche to us, you know? Yeah. And what I started doing with that Amazon Alexa when I had it was I unplugged it when we were talking mm-hmm. and then plugged it back in when we we're going to use it, like for playing music or yeah. saying, hey, Alexa, what's the weather like today? Right. Yeah. Uh, because when you unplug it, there's no power and uh, there's no opportunity for Alexa to listen to you. So, uh, yeah, for you, <laughs> in your case, <laughs> you probably want to unplug it. Uh, but one one more thing I just wanted to add to our conversation since we brought up technology, AI, impact to humans. Another big, big, big issue currently with technology is uh is racism i would say uh, yeah is technology is super racist so what do i mean by that say for example let's just say ai again the so a couple of years ago this was about three years ago and google came up with their new app google photos and uh they updated their algorithm where they said you know what we're gonna t- make your life a lot easier we're gonna auto categorize photos for you and put it in folders. Unfortunately, what happened was it classified African-American people as gorillas. What? Yep. And it was a huge issue. The reason is the data sets we are using to feed this AI is not diverse enough. So the odds are the person who actually built the algorithm, when they were using images of different people, uh, they didn't use enough images from people like Asia, people of different colors, right? So the algorithm didn't know how to classify people of color. And this is just a simple example of how deep, deeply ingrained the problem of racism is with these technologies. In fact, you were we were just talking about tech jobs and we were just talking about getting into the tech industry and related to that is screening people. So again, a couple of years ago, University of Chicago, along with along with MIT, they did an experiment where they sent resumes for different jobs in Boston, okay? And some resumes had African-American names like Jeremiah, Teash, uh uh, those kind of names, and then some resumes with just plain, plain ass white names like John Smith, right? Yeah, they found that resumes with white names had fifty percent more callback than resumes with Hispanic or African American names, and the and a lot of these big companies like Google, Microsoft, they use AI bots to screen resumes, and Immediately, you're already starting from a, a step back just because you are a person of color. 
And that's how deeply this problem of racism is ingrained. And there are more stories like this, which are scary as shit, because when I start telling people, I don't want to scare your listeners. But what I'm just trying to say is be as consumers, be as like some some of whom some of you who are listening are people of color. So we people have to start educating ourselves and others on how these things are actually impacting, right? Because I just want to share, share one more story related to uh, this whole race aspect. So not a lot of people know this, but when inmates are sentenced in U.S. prisons, they are asked to fill out a questionnaire it's called the LSIR questionnaire, and people can just Google it. And there, they're asked different kinds of questions, one of which is, what is the first time you encountered cops? What are your What was your first encounter with cops? Or when was the first encounter with cops? The odds are, so say, for example, let's just take Chicago. If you grew up in the southern part of Chicago, right? Southern part of Chicago doesn't have enough funding and there's a lot of crime there because of various reasons. So the odds are if this inmate grew up in that area, he or she would say, yeah, when I was six years, I first encountered the cops because they get randomly questioned, even if they're innocent in those areas. For the same question, if there's another inmate who grew up in a rich white neighborhood and he or she would say, at the age of 35, I encountered my uh, my first encounter with cops was at age of 35. And what happens is these replies get, get fed into AI models. And then it immediately classifies the the first person I mentioned who grew up in South, South Chicago as high risk. And it classifies the person who grew up in this rich white neighborhood as low risk. And their sentencing is based on that, which is crazy. Right. An AI algorithm is sentencing you and making wow. judgment on you. And again, uh, don't get me wrong here. Some prison systems use these results verbatim. Like I believe in Colorado and some places in Texas, they just use these results as it is and do the sentencing. But in other prison systems, it's just part of the criteria for them to do the sentencing. But the summary of the story is it is, deeply affecting people. And that's the reason why most of the prison systems have, like they have a lot of Hispanics and African-American people because right. one of the reasons is these algorithms are rigged. And and you don't have to believe me when I say all these things, just Google LSIR questionnaire. And, uh, and there's this amazing, amazing book. It's called Weapons of Math Destruction. M A H math destruction. All these things which I'm saying are mentioned in the book as well. This this Harvard mathematician who writes about all these things and who's building AI models right now. She actually had to leave her high paying job because she thought it was immoral to work on AI algorithms like this. But anyhow, wow. yeah, I can keep talking about the AI diversity piece because I'm really passionate about it, especially in the current age we live in, where um, there's racism widespread all uh, everywhere we live and our friends are getting affected. So these are the issues people have to educate themselves on and try to do something about it. The way I'm doing something about it is like 
sharing about these things like in your podcast. Then I do keynotes and talks about these like AI and diversity. Uh, and then I write articles about it as well. So hopefully other people do the same thing and we, we all can get educated on this topic. Wow. I got I got to tell you, Raj, this is like chock full of amazing information, extremely valuable information. Uh, our time is running up here, but uh, we got to do a part two of this, man, because there's like a ton of questions <laughs> going on in my mind that I need some clarification and I'd love to get your thoughts uh, on that. So um, we got to uh, saddle up for another time on the podcast so we can continue this. Definitely. We could focus on the diversity aspect. We could focus yes. on uh, even like jobs and what does it mean to be, ha what does it mean to have a diverse work environment? What does that actually mean? Right. So uh, yeah, there's so many, so many things we could talk about just taking the diversity aspect and then yeah. plugging that into the tech space. Most definitely. I think, you know, um, you have such knowledge of the space. I love having somebody who's in the space talking about it and uh, intelligently and providing actionable things that can be done that the public can do to protect their data, understand what's going on with these algorithms, what the tech space is like. Because to be honest, we're all in the tech space on some level because we're using it. So whether you're working in it or you're actually consuming it, you're in it. So it's a universal situation for the majority of people at this point. So thank you so much, Raj, for your information and your presence on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was uh, such a pleasure being on your podcast, sharing my insights on uh, various topics. I know we covered so much and yeah, but uh Love the opportunity to talk more in upcoming podcasts. And also, uh, hopefully, this uh, information we shared are helpful for your audience. So, For sure. Thank you, Raj. And uh, we will definitely be in contact. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it, man. Take care. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine. And when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences. And it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So get the donut, stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text donut to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone. Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? 
Well, there is a nice piece of stock music playing behind me that a talented composer worked really hard on. So let's enjoy it. Almost overshadows the saving big when you switch to progressive part. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Gorgeous gaming, stunning streams, unbelievable bandwidth. It's another Lifestyles of Gagillionaires. Meet the AT&T Fiber customers winning at life with hyper gig speeds. Meet Gagillionaire Terry. While his love of streaming horror movies has him constantly on the edge of his seat, his internet bill won't give him a scare. Oh, don't go in there. I'm telling you. Because since Terry upgraded to AT&T Fiber with hyper gig speeds, he doesn't worry about data caps or equipment fees. Come on, man. The door's open for a reason. And best yet, he also doesn't stress about a price increase at 12 months. Because with the amazing Gagillionaire lifestyle comes an exquisite sense of tranquility. <laughs> Most of the time. Live like a Gagillionaire. Get straightforward pricing with AT&T Fiber. Internet that upgrades everything. No data caps, no equipment fees, and no price increase in 12 months. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details.